Thanks for joining us today on the NCMI podcast. If you're planting or leading a church, you might have asked yourself, what kind of church will you lead? There are many approaches to leading and growing a church. So at our Church Planters and Lead Elders Training Week, Grant Crawford, who leads One Life Church in South Africa, provided helpful tools and approaches to this question. For more church planning and church leadership resources, check out ncmi.net. So, what kind of church will you lead? So I suppose you've realized that if you're not leading a church right now, there's basically, you're either going to take over a group of people, take over the leadership of a church, and you've been listening to and will continue to listen to people talk to you about transitioning. And then there's the possibility that you plant, plant from scratch. Now, there's all sorts of ways we could deal with this subject. What type of church? But I think you've got to think through. You've got to say, Lord, show me what you've called me to do. You can't just say, I'm going to plant, and you've got no idea of what you're going into. There's got to be dreams. There's got to be ideas. There's got to be a way. Um, and so I think you should think about these things. Then I'm, I'm going to nail it down with this. Firstly, you, you should by now, if you're about to lead a church or take over a church, um, have a reasonable handle on your doctrine. But you know that doctrine grows. Your, your, your grasp on doctrine, your whole life, theology is the study of God and He is infinite. So it's a journey, a lifelong journey. So I think you've got to ask yourself this question as I'm leading because every leader wears two hats. Every church visionary elder, lead elder has got two hats. You've got the preacher and you've got the leader. Now, some of you love to preach. I know church planters, they just love to preach. If they could prepare sermons all week and then deliver it on a Sunday, that was church planting. They would, they would have looked like they've died and gone to heaven. And then I know others who, it's a problem to prepare a sermon, and they love people, love leading people. And, uh, but we've got to do both as leading a church. Preacher, leader. And so that preaching hat, you've got to ask yourself this question, how am I going to be fed through my ministry life? How's my doctrine going to develop? And who is in my corner that's going to help me when I've got difficult doctrinal issues to wrestle with? You should think those things through before you, you plant because your feeding of your flock, you become what you eat. It's an important thing to think about. The other important thing I think you need to think about in terms of the type of church you're going to lead is the nature of your apostolic partnerships. And so that's why at Church Partners Like This, we talk about that how you have uh, team guys coming in, giving perspective. When are they going to give perspective? What sort of perspective are they going to give? How can they help you? How do you relate to them? How do you press on? Some guy will deal with that. Um, and then I think you've got to think through your core values. Values don't happen by accident. Values, in other words, let me just take a simple one that you all know relational value, a friendship value, believe in friendship before function, if you put that little tag on it. That doesn't just happen by accident. You establish values. If you want a, a value of mission, in other words, evangelism, people getting saved, that just doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just because you preach about it two or three times a year. For you to establish a value, you have got to repeat it again and again and again and again, and you've got to celebrate it. You will create what you celebrate. So if you get excited about people getting saved, your church will catch it. It'll become a value. You can't get excited once in a while. Excited at baptisms, excited at salvation calls, excited at people getting invited. Your eyes have got to light up and a value will be established. You've got to be careful who you promote because the people you promote, their values will be transferred onto your church. You've got to think through your values. What are the I'm not talking about doctrine here now. I'm talking about the way you do life, the way your conviction on the way the church should operate. Th those values, you've got to repeat, you've got to celebrate, and you've got to get people around you that share those values. Because if you don't have strong values, you're going to have a weak church. I've seen churches split on three, because of three reasons. I've seen church splits happen, and you don't want a church split when you've got like 50 people. I've seen church splits happen on doctrinal issues. I've seen church splits happen 
on personality issues. In other words, relationships gone south, boom, church split. And I've seen churches split on values. This is his values. This is what he deems important. This is your values, what you deem important. Because you haven't built your church along the lines of your values, you have people siding. So values are important. So think through your doctrine. Think through your values. Think through uh, who's in your corner apostolically. And then I want to take a couple of minutes talking about thinking through how you're going to build. You've heard the term wineskin, haven't you? Matthew chapter 9, Jesus talks about wineskin. And in those wineskins, he says you need new wineskins for new wine. New wine speaking about a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, the anointing. You can't have an old, crusty model trying to hold the new thing that God's doing. If you do, Jesus says that wineskin pops. Now, I know that you can exegete that text other ways, but that's always been a helpful way for me to look at it, that our model needs to be flexible. A guy came to see me the other day. He'd planted out from our church 10 years ago, doing quite well, but his church has got stuck at about 150 people. And... uh, he made this trip down to Cape Town to come spend some time with me. And so I said to him, no, why have you come? So he says, well, I've come because I want to ask you questions. He's asked for three days with me questions on how to grow this thing beyond 150 people. So I said, but you know how to do that. You took our children's ministry and you multiplied it into 10 different children's ministries. He says, yeah, no, it's not the same though because that were different sites. I don't know how to do this. So I said, explain to me your idea of how you develop a church, develop your people. He says, you mean how do I use my people in building my church? So I said, yes. He says, you know that toy that toddlers have? It's a red and blue one, which has got holes. Triangles, squares, diamonds, and circles. They're yellow. You know the toy? Don't know what that toy is called, but he says, I've got a model. And he said, I loved my years at One Life. He was an elder with us for like 15 years. And he says, I've got the model. And, I, and, and what I try and do is I try and find the people. I try to get the round guy in the round hole. And I try and get the triangle guy in the triangle hole. And I try and put all the pieces together because I know people are important. So I said to him, that model sucks, bud. He says, what do you mean? So I said, well, I promise you, what you were involved with 10 years ago with One Life Church If you think it was that little red and blue thing, I promise you it is like totally different. Because models must change. They can't be stiff and starchy like that. You can't force people into methods. You're not Methodists. (laughs) Sorry, Methodists. It's so I said to him, this is how if you've got your doctrine that is firm and established, you're not gonna let that go. And you've got your values that you want to. Um, live by and you're not going to let that go you've got your values and you've got your doctrine your model is the thing that does change your values don't your doctrine doesn't but your model must change and so he says well explain that to me I don't don't really understand how, how that works so I said to him okay instead of taking your people and trying to squeeze them into something that you've architected before the Lord So I'm assuming he comes down from his holy mountain and uh, God says to him, sorry if my mate ever listens to this, I'm not telling you his name, um, that this is the model, God, this is the strategy, this is the plan. I don't ever see that. I don't see Paul coming down into a church that he's about to plant and say, this is the blueprint. I've heard people talk about ecclesiology, talking about architecture. It's as, as if, like Noah, we are given the architecture beforehand and then say, God, fill it with people and fill it with your presence. Architecture develops. It's about people. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's more like this. It's more like a glove that fits on a hand. If I lost a thumb, my glove would look different. God gives you gifts. He gives you people. I think our job as pastors is to blow on that gifting. Blow on the gift. When you see an ember arriving, you, you blow on it and you stir it. Because, because, you know, Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that you received 
through the, the laying on of hands when the elders prophesied over you. And he's saying, stir that thing up. And so you should, this is I think how your ecclesiology works, your model works. You say, God, who have you given me? And why have you given them to me? And once you can answer that question, you blow on it. And the degree to which that guy develops shapes your model. That's flexibility. You're not dropping your doctrine and you're not dropping your values. If, it's, if what he begins to do starts to deviate from your values, you tighten it up. So our lens to look at the type of church we're building, I think is a value doctrinal one. It's not a model one. As soon as we start dying for a model, we've got a time clock on our, on our relevance. We've got a time clock on our ability to reach the lost. So, when I started leading our church that I'm leading right now, uh, 22 years ago, I inherited a overhead projector. You know that thing with a fan that used to go, and they had a transparencies on the board. I come from Marisburg, and, I, and when I had finished university, I couldn't turn a computer on. So, technology wasn't something I'd even thought about. But I had a guy on my team with a Mensa IQ rating, who's now leading a church in Joburg, who, who, who taught himself, well, he studied actually computer science up until one credit to go or something, and then he abandoned it and studied something else. So he's that sort of a dude. But he taught himself to, to like make movies. And so why has God given me this guy? And what is that gonna do for the gospel? Suddenly, he paints our building a different color. The lights go out. The gospel's coming in a whole new way. And un overnight, I'm able to, try to multiply what I'm doing. People branded me a heretic back in those days. We're talking 20 years ago. My father, who's still on staff with me, he's 80 years old. When the dude painted the wall the same color that's in front here, because it used to be pastel blue for 20 years. He comes to me and he says, my boy, didn't I teach you anything when you were growing up? I said, what's the story? He says, you know the devil has a color. It's black. You expect me to worship in this building and you painted the whole thing black. I can remember those days. I had on the same team a guy who had just come back from India and one of the things he could do was spin a million plates at once. He was an incredible administrator. So I had a guy who could spin plates and I had a guy who was brilliant at media and I had another guy, this chap that I'm talking to you about actually that was leading my children's ministry who was an incredible executor of other people's dreams. I had these three guys and God used that to change our entire way of doing church. But I didn't come back with a blueprint from somewhere and say, I wanna architect something. I just said, I'm gonna blow on that guy, I'm gonna blow on that guy, I'm gonna blow on that guy. I had Stephen Wimble on that team, some of you know who Stephen Wimble is, who is a phenomenal preacher. Suddenly I realized there was a possibility of me developing a preaching team through, Peter, through uh, um, Stephen because Stephen had that as his number one uh, priority in his life. He wanted to do that at that stage of his life. And so you blow on those, so you, I'm asking you to ask this question. Who has God given you? You blow on that and his anointing will make room and begin to develop and change how you're doing church. Our model is something that needs to adjust and change all the time. So I promise you the way I'm doing church right now, I've just left KZN, moved to the Cape. I'm only in KZN for 10 days of the month. That has changed the way we do church radically. I judge it not by, is this a model I found somewhere? Is this thing strategic? Have I got this off some holy mountain? Have I got a blueprint like Noah got his plans? No. I judge it according to our values. Are our relationships still authentic? Are we still spirit-led? Is the, is the Bible still treasured? Am I still developing leaders? Is 
is there still an organic relational component to how we put this thing together? I've got to look at our values and I assess, is what I'm doing now going to betray all that? Or is it, and if it's not, then it can change. So, hey, have you got what I'm saying there? I've really labored the point. But you're not going to get a blueprint. Well, if you think you're going to get a blueprint from this, this uh, church planters course, I'm suggesting you hold it very, very lightly and ask yourself this question. How much of it is doctrinal? How much of it is values? Everything else must be handled loosely. Of course, you can learn from new strategies and new ways and new methods, but you don't die for that stuff. That stuff must be changed. Otherwise, it becomes idolatrous and God shakes it up. So we've got to stay nimble and flexible. Otherwise, we become irrelevant. Now, if you start looking at the type of church you're going to lead, I'm going to give you a couple of pictures just to help you scope ahead. So if you're planning to plant a church, I'm going to talk about what you're likely to face. Some of you might be ready to take over a church. I'm going to suggest to you that the health of a church has got nothing to do with the size of that church. You can have a small church that is very, very unhealthy. And you can have a big church that is very, very unhealthy. Let me tell you about a little story that happened to me about 15 years ago. A guy pitched up at our starting point course who was an elder. Our starting point is like our looking in, our new members thing. Uh, This guy pitched up who was an elder in a church that I used to go to. I used to go and preach at that church. And every time I went to that church, that pastor used to ask me, teach me how to grow the church. Speak on church growth. I don't know why he asked that. He kept on asking that. Anyway, lo and behold, 15 years ago, this dude pitches up and he's an elder in that church that I used to go to. So I say to him, hey, bud, good to see you. Have you left that particular place? He says, yes, I have. I said, well, when did you move to Maritzburg? He said, two years ago. I said, two years ago? It's taking you two years to get on the starting point. Where have you been? Backsliding. So he says, no, it happened like this. My senior pastor, my lead elder, told me, there's a lot of great churches in Maritzburg. And whatever you do, don't go to One Life Church. I said, what? My friend, the guy I've been ministering at his church, he told you not to come to our church. Why? Did he give you a reason? So he said, yes, he said this. He said, go and find a little church where they need your ability to lead worship, where they need you, you'll be able to preach there. One Life Church, they don't need you. They don't need you in their bands. They don't need you to preach. You're going to be a nobody. You're going to sit in the back corner. Rather go to a church that needs you. If you think that was good advice, I'm about to blow a little blind spot in your brain. That guy, remember, he used to get me in to teach how to grow his church. But deep in his heart, he believes that big church is bad church. He'll protest, even if he heard me saying it now, he'd protest. He would never have given that guy that advice if he thought that good big church could be a good church. He's got this default setting in his mind that if my church grows, I'm going to lose my values, lose the ability to pastor people, lose the ability to influence people, and so rather go to a small church. So I said to him, well, what happened over the last two years? He says, well, I tried those little churches. And I'm here now. (laughs) He didn't stay with us long, don't worry. He lasted three years and he relocated back to another province. But it told me more about that lead guy than it told me about him. So if that thought is in your mind, that my church is going to be so pure, so holy, so beautiful when it's small, God help me when it gets big. In fact, back in our early days as a tribe, this is what we used to do. We used to teach every single elder. When, uh, when you are ready to go plant, you must go plant immediately. And, and basically what we did is we planted a whole lot of churches that were under like 150. 
which is an incredible strategy, and it's not bad. But from then to now, you've got these sort of churches, Cornerstone, and uh, down in the Eastern Cape, you'll meet Rich Preston and, and others. And these churches are not unhealthy, they're just different. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, speak to you but let me just touch that again. One more illustration just to help you. My daughter lives in a little village called Underberg. I don't know how many people live there, but maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000, I don't know. Uh, they have a GP. If you want to medicate Underberg, you go to the GP. So if you've got a little bit of a broken bone, you go there. If you're a little bit crazy, you go to that GP. If you're a little bit pregnant, you go to that GP. That little GP can do everything. They can, and, and really, the community loves the GP. But listen, you go to a city, you don't medicate a city with 500 GPs. You build a hospital, right? The GPs are in the hospital, but you need a pediatric ward. You need a, you need a geriatric ward. You need a psych ward. The GPs are there. Now, this is the story. True story. I broke my leg once on a motorbike. Smash my tib and fib. Wound up in hospital. Plaster Paris up to here. Embarrassingly, I was bed bathed. Someone fed me jelly and ice cream. They wiped my brow. They sat next to my bed. My GP never did any of that stuff for me. Praise the Lord, my GP never bed bathed me. He's never fed me ice cream and he's never wiped my brow. And yet some people say the GP is the good caring guy. Sorry if there's GPs in the building. The GP is the good caring guy and the hospital is just a big machine. No, it's not. I received a lot of love in that hospital. It's just different. It's just different. Now, when it comes to church, as I'm trying to say to you, you can have a very unhealthy church of 10 people and you can have a very healthy church of 10,000 people. If you, because look, when God adds, when God added to the church, 5,000 in the early church. Did he do that to spite them? And was it a horrible church? No, but he had a way of integrating them in and the way of that church busy developing. Yes, you, as a church planter, I don't know how else to say this more kindly to you. Get out of your mind that small is beautiful. Beautiful has got nothing to do with small or big. Nothing to do with small or big. There are some horrific big churches, agreed. But there are also some beautiful big churches. So let me give you this little illustration that I borrowed from some dude so long ago, I've forgotten who it was, but it's a great illustration. And I want to describe the realities of different stages of your church and what's required to lead that type of church. That's our subject today. What type of church you're going to lead. Well, when you plant a church, I'm going to use an illustration of uh, different sports games to describe churches. When you plant a church, you're like a deck athlete. Do you know what a deck athlete is? It's the dude, it's an Olympic game um, discipline where you sprint and the same dude who sprints does the high jump. The same guy does shot put. The same guy does javelin. The same guy does steeplechase. All 10 disciplines. Now, when you're a church planter, you're like a Duke athlete. You arrive, your, 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 your wife is leading worship, if you're lucky. Your dog is the first sheep. Your kid is welcoming the dog into the building. And you are doing the ministry, and then you're probably going to do some children's ministry with your kid at the back door as you leave. You're a deck athlete. You do everything yourself. And that's the reality, church planter. That's what you got. You got to, you got to suck it in. You got to realize that for that stage of your life, you everything. You have to do everything. And it's good for you because you learn how to serve. You learn how to do the projector. You learn how to do children's ministry. You learn how to clean up vomit off the floor. You learn that. It's a stage you go through. Then a couple of families join you and it looks more like golf. Those of you who've played golf know that it really is you're playing your own game with the company of someone else. You're going for a walk with someone else. You don't hit each other's balls. That's, that's not acceptable. You've got your own ball. 
You're doing your own thing. He's doing his own thing and you're just doing life together. Most house churches are playing golf. He's no designated leader. You actually give the guy space. If you talk when he's trying to hit, he's going to say, hey, mind out of my own business. And up until your church is about 30 people, it's like you're playing golf. And most of the churches of the world don't get bigger than that. Do you know that? If you want to go from 30 up to 150, 200, you have got to do something so radical that people say to you, I didn't sign up for this. I'm a golfer. I'm not doing what you're doing now. And the best illustration for me is basketball. You throw away all the golf balls, you've got one ball. You've got a leader who's shouting and screaming, telling everybody to go uh, and put the ball into one hoop. So what's important with basketball is you've got vision. You've got team playing together now. Everybody's mucking in, doing the same thing. You've got to have some inspiring leader to play basketball. You, you, you can't play basketball like you play golf. And so if your church is going to develop into basketball, I'm suggesting when you plant it, have that in mind. Leadership in mind. Vision in mind. And you'll go through golf and you'll make that transition into basketball. But I'm telling you, you're going to lose people. I'm telling you. That, that launch crew that started, they signed up for golf. Thinking they're your best friend, doing life along with you. All of a sudden, you kick into leadership mode, vision mode. We're going to go and do something. We've got a, we've got a world to win. They say, I didn't sign up for this. Why are you getting all hyped up, bro? Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's something like 98% of the churches in the world never get beyond basketball. If you're going to transition a church, and that church has got somewhere between 30 and 150 people in it, and you concentrate on vision and on leadership and on mission and on community and on family, the distinctive with basketball is you're all on the same court. You all know where you're going. You're going to play very good basketball. But that church is never going to grow over 150 people at a meeting. So I know many churches that go in a single meeting now. They say, I've got 400 in my church. Really? I pitch up to the church. There's 180 sitting in the building. Well, they're in revival when it gets up to 220. But you know what's going to happen if they don't change the way they're playing? It's going to go back down to 180 in wintertime. Back up to 220 in August. Back down to 180. It's going to do that. 98% of the churches in the world never blow through that. Because the philosophy, the type of church you're leading is a basketball church. And you're accenting vision and you're accenting community and team and family and dining room Christianity. You heard these words. They're brilliant. And you build a beautiful, healthy church like that. But if you are taking over a church like that and you are dreaming for multiple hundreds and reaching thousands, you can't play basketball. There is radical adjustment needed. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that radical adjustment because I realize that most of you are heading into decathletes and golf and a good season of basketball. But I am going to drop one or two thoughts to you because if you can introduce some, some elements into your basketball playing, you set yourself up for your next season. And, and the next season looks more like gridiron football than it does basketball. Sorry, it's not the rugby analogy, but gridiron's so much better. I believe there's like 83 people on a gridiron team, American football. The thing about that is that not only is it big, but it's, it's just totally different. You've got multiple captains. There are multiple leaders on a gridiron team. It's not just the quarterback. You've got the defensive leader. You've got the attacking leader. You've got a kicking team. I've always puzzled about that kicking team. Why they put helmets and pads on them? Because those dudes, they, they go on. Remember Nas Britta, for those of you old enough to remember him? He was the kicker for the Dallas Cowboys. I wondered why they bothered to put a helmet on that dude. I mean, he never got touched in rugby union, let alone gridiron. But his job 
was just to run on and kick. And, you know, his practice is just kicking for hours. That's all he's doing. He's paid millions just to kick a ball through a couple of sticks. Gridiron is totally different. It's got multiple practice fields, multiple leaders, multiple communities, multiple visionaries, multiple experts. I mean, they've got chefs and cooks, especially for the defensive team. They feed the burgers and starch. Because those dudes, they, they just, they just got to fall on people and hurt people. Then they're attacking fast oaks. They feed them celeries and carrots and so on. And, and they've got psychologists helping them to get away from the big fat guys that are taking them out. It's, it's, like, it's complicated. It's not basketball. If you take basketball philosophy and try and play gridiron football, you're going to reduce that gridiron team. Often guys will come to me and they'll say to me, there's a church down the road, 200. Church down the road, 200. We're going to combine these two churches. We're going to have a mega church of 400. You know what I say to them? Listen to this mathematics. If your leadership is going to stay exactly like it is now, 200 plus 200 equals 200 in two years' time. Because you have got the perfect size church for your leadership style basketball player. Unless you change. It's, so the question we've been asking, what sort of church are you going to lead? And so I'm saying to you that if you plant like this cornerstone church planted, I don't know, it was Leon van Dahl back in the days. I don't know if there was anybody before him. They would have gone from decathlete to golf, grid, basketball for a long time. And then something happened, and you can say, oh, just, you know, the Holy Spirit happened. No, God makes things grow all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, who is Apollos and who is Paul? One waters and the other one plants, but God makes things grow. And so that underline, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 underlines it two or three times. It says this, God makes things grow. So why does God not make? 98% of the churches grow beyond 150. And don't tell me the answer is he doesn't like big church. Because he added 3,000. He added 5,000. You're going to be in heaven with a multitude you cannot count. God is not against crowds. I'll tell you why. It's because God gives you a toolbox. He gives you grace and he gives you faith. But if you, like my mate, really think in your heart that you've got no faith for God to work with crowds, You've got no faith that your values are going to sustain when you're playing gridiron. Then he's going to entrust you with basketball. And you're going to have a brilliant basketball team. I hope this hasn't sounded patronizing in any way. I, I want to say this, friends. I know many horrific big churches. I'm not saying big is good. I'm just saying the reality is different leadership tools are needed for different seasons in the church's life. Can I go through those tools very quickly with you? I think when you're playing golf, when you're starting out, when you're getting going, to play good golf, to, to get to 30 people very quickly, you, you need to have a sober assessment of your gift mix. If you are not someone who can gather people, gather, find yourself a gatherer. Find yourself someone who can. And they're the most unlikely people. Let me tell you something. I mean, I'm down in the Cape now. And we've just planted three down there. And uh, this one guy, his dad is a pastor in a church somewhere in the universe. And his dad phones me and says, my son is relocating to Cape Town. Can I give you his number? Invite him to your church. So I'd never met this boy before, but I phoned him. So he says to me over the phone, he says, Grant, I will come to your church. Thanks for inviting me but I'm not guaranteed that I'm going to stay because I've got to check out the vibe. So I think, oh, okay. Here's a dude checking out the vibe. That Sunday night he arrives and he makes a beeline for me and he says, gee, there's a vibe in this place. This guy's a chartered accountant. He's looking for a vibe. Just happens to be a lot of varsity students around him. I look at that guy and you would look at it at first glance. He's a chartered accountant looking for a vibe. He's stuck. We put him in a band the very next day. Not the next week. The next day he was in band practice. We pulled him into community. That guy drags unsafe people to church like a 
cat dragging mice into your house. He drags them in every week. He comes with people. I look at that guy and I think, he doesn't want to preach. He doesn't want to do anything other than play a bass guitar, but he drags people in. The most unlikely to do so. God, if you're going to start and you aren't able to gather people, get a gatherer in your circle. And then I think from day one, you've got to start looking at small groups. Not one small group, multiple small groups. Start thinking, because if you're going to take it from golf to basketball, you, you've got to start putting a team together. How are you going to start putting a team together if you do everything yourself? If you do the preaching, you do the worship, you do the small group. Start with something. Start breaking things up into get some support teams going, even while you, you're playing golf. Because when you have to make those big transitions, and these are the decisions that are needed to, to go from golf into basketball, you need to start envisioning things and casting vision and speaking and dreaming and deciding things. Now, God will give everyone different ideas. Some of you will start alpha courses. Some will start marriage courses. Some will join um, soccer clubs. Some will do carols by candlelight. Some, some will start a home group. Some will start a mother's group. I don't know what God's gonna give you, but you've gotta to begin to dream. And as you as the visionary begin to cast vision, you slowly start moving out of golf. Hang on a minute. I'm not just smacking my golf ball now. You're calling me to something else. Vision is important. And, and then establishing of a small team, a core team around you. Leadership is important. The setting of deacons in place and elders in place. Why? Because mothers and fathers are needed. Because you're building community. Community is huge. Not, I'm just talking about breaking a bread. I'm talking about developing a sense of family. You, you, you've, you've, and you've got to get mothers and fathers to help you do that. That's how you play basketball. I hope this analogy is, is helping. Now, I said I'll just talk very quickly because I think some of you might transition churches and some of you might be thinking when I transition the church, I've just got to grab the wheel. In fact, I know one of you two guys who've just transitioned the church. It is a very good thing to grab the wheel first. Develop relationships with key people first. Let people see your heart first. It, it is a good thing. But your job is not just to maintain. And if God puts faith in your heart to, to make this thing grow bigger, I think these are the adjustments that are needed. I'm going to go through them very, very quickly. You've got to move from community to communities. In other words, it's not all about Sunday. Because once you get beyond 150, people start feeling it's not friendly anymore. And I can show you studies that prove that, anthropological, sociological ones. You, suddenly when the group is 400, lots of people don't get hugged on a Sunday. Lots of people aren't asked, how was your week? It becomes impersonal, it becomes, and if your method, if your toolbox is just Sunday relationship, it's going to be unhealthy big church. So you've got, to, you've got to get everybody into small groups. You move from community to communities. Jesus did that. When he had 5,000 people, he could teach them as 5,000. He could, you know, do miracles in front of 5,000, see faith in front of 5,000. But as soon as he wanted community, groups of 50s and 100s on the green grass. And so what you've, you've got to be able to do is move from, when people start talking about your church, they don't talk about the Sunday gathering. If people talk about, if I, I had to ask Stanley, right, if I someone in Stanley's church, I said, tell me about Glenridge. And all he tells me about is Sunday morning. I'm telling you what, he wouldn't just talk about Sunday morning because these guys have passed basketball donkeys years ago. He'll talk about his small groups. He'll talk about other things that they do together. He'll talk about stuff that the church is busy doing because it's not monodimensional. You've got to move from generalist to specialist. On a gridiron team, you've got a, a kicker and a, a defender and an attacker and a quarterback. And you've got to celebrate that. You know, when Jesus was dealing with his disciples, he made all of them all-rounders like GPs, didn't he? They could all heal a little bit, a little bit of event coordinating, a little bit of demon casting out, a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But as soon as 5,000 are added to the number, we suddenly see 
apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists to equip the saints. You don't need that if you're playing basketball. You don't need that. Where were the prophets, pastors, pastors, and evangelists when Jesus was ministering on earth? They were embodied in him. He was the body of Christ. When he leaves, and now thousands of people are his body, he needs specialists. We not Jesus. We need people to help us pastor. We need people to help us prophesy. We need people to help us teach. Got to celebrate those gifts. You're never going to have a healthy church if you're making everybody a disciple and nobody a specialist. You can't, it will be healthy at, at basketball, but that's not healthy gridiron football. Got to celebrate the people who are gifted with children. They live for it. They, there's, there's a guy of a church I've just gone to now. He's like 40-something years old, and he's still a youth leader. He is absolutely besotted with teenagers. He gets up in the morning, and he's like, he's the dude I told you that they gave the responsibility to make announcements. That dude. He's still running youth. And he's a specialist. He's at every single school in his city. He's got hundreds coming. Millions of dollars or rands, sorry, millions of rands are put into the facilities that he's dreamed about. Why? He's a specialist. And that church has grown because a specialist has developed. And guess what? The parents of those teenagers are in that church. And there's two parents for every kid. So if there's 500 kids, there's 1,000 parents. If that guy wasn't recognized. Now, I remember when he arrived at that church. I've been ministering that church for 20 years. I remember when he arrived. He came out of a, like a Pentecostal denomination. He was weird. Sean, if you ever get this, it's cool. We all know you were weird. That lead guy, I remember every time I went there, his questions were, how do I lead this oak? But he didn't let him go. God had given him this weird dude. This weird dude now is 40-something years old, and he is breathtaking and the fruit behind him because his lead guy who's very different to him blew into him and encouraged him and fanned that thing into flame that thing grew and they moved from basketball to gridiron on the back of that as one of the one of the reasons why and is that a healthy church it's an extremely healthy church he's got another guy in that church who used to be in charge of tourism for the city in other words, all the events in that city were organized by this guy. He could spin a million plates at once. He has his glasses on the end of his nose and he wanders around like this. He's in permanent, permanent motion, permanent motion. Now, the, the guy who leads that church is an incredible teacher. He's solid. Everyone says to me about that guy when he's there, this is the leader. We'll feel, we'll feel, we feel safe when he's in the house. But he's got running around him this youth dude and this administrator that is... That is, it's like a geriatric ward, a pediatric ward. He has allowed the specialists to run. And what have they done? Just like Ephesians 4 gifts have done in an apostolic sense, they've done in a local sense. They have equipped the saints for acts of service. And then it's healthy. Because you know when a body is unhealthy, when it's inactive. Big is bad when it's inactive. What makes big active? The gifts, the specialist gifts activate a body. The kidney and the liver and the heart, they've all got to be functioning. Otherwise, that body is unhealthy. So what are unhealthy big churches? They're preaching halls where just the manor gets up and struts his stuff and everybody watches him. That's an unhealthy big church. A proper gridiron. You move from community to communities, generalists to specialists, You've got to become a little bit more strategic and formal about the way you communicate. Some of you are saying, whoa, I can check one of my values dropping right now. We just let the Bush Telegraph do the job. We just let rumors circulate. We just let, you know, we just whisper and everybody knows. That's fine for basketball because in basketball, you're getting together in a team huddle. One guy sneezes, everybody's got COVID. That's how it works. But with gridiron, they don't even know each other's names, man. Doesn't mean it's ungodly. Listen, you're not going to know every dude's name that of 5,000 that were added in Jerusalem. Doesn't mean it's ungodly. When Jesus was ministering to his 12 and the 72, did he write anything down? 
Some of you might think that in John chapter 8, he wrote on the ground, but he certainly didn't write any parchments. And yet, after 5,000 are added, after 3,000 are added, after the churches all over Asia Minor and Europe, suddenly we have the epistles and Acts and the Gospels. And Luke says, I find it important that I write down an orderly account. Why? It's not less loving. It's not less righteous. Sometimes I write poems. I love to write poems. The only person I write poems to, though, is my wife. You're telling me that when I speak to my wife, it's more romantic than when I write to a poem. No, it's just different. It's just different. And so don't write off leaders. Don't write off a model when you say, oh, my core value is that you mustn't be organized. Your, your organization mustn't override your relationships. But actually, that early church wrote letters. It, it organized visits. Paul scheduled people coming in and out. It wasn't chaotic. With me. So, I, I could talk a lot more on that. I'm not going to. When you take over a church that's got one or 200 in it and you're trusting God for the future, go and speak to people on the apostolic team that are leading churches beyond that. They might even not know the reason or the methodology because methods don't grow a church. But I'll tell you what happens. Our expectation, that's why this is an important subject. What church are you planning to lead? What church are you planning to lead? And your expectations of that, your faith that you've got out there, you can't have some vain idea, I want a big church, and then think in your heart, that is the worst type of church that ever exists, like my mate. And get people on the apostolic team that, so if you're planting a church, getting me and Stan Phipps in after week three is probably a very stupid idea. We've forgotten the pain. Get a dude in who's been going for the last five years or last 10 years. I'm not saying God can't use guys that are leading different churches, that are, but, but I'm saying think who you've got in your corner to help guide you through. I'm gonna read off these 10 tools for your toolbox. No matter what stage you're in, these are your tools. Remember, this is not your values. This is not your model. I hope I've been able to say to you that your model is flexible. It's not cast in concrete. People talk about the NCMI model. What is that? What is that? Tyron and Dudley would freak if we were preaching the model instead of the gospel. What they mean when they say that is they mean values and doctrine that stabilize you as you get onto the ministry, what God has for you. But your model's got to change. But here's some tools. This is not doctrine. This is not values. This is not model. These are tools in your toolbox, whether you're playing basketball, whether you're playing gridiron. And these tools are used differently in different stages in your life, but these are very important tools. Number one, small groups. They are biblical tools. Early church used it right the way through the epistles. It's clearly evident the church organizes in small groups. Number two, leadership development. It's what Jesus modeled. Whether you're playing basketball, gridiron, or golf, develop leaders. The difference between doing it all yourself and investing as leaders is as different as to addition to multiplication. If you're going to do everything yourself, that's addition by, by that, that's growth by addition. If you invest in people, you multiply yourself, it grows. That's God's plan. It's a tool in your toolbox. The presence of God in your corporate meetings. Surely God is among them. Paul says of the, to the Corinthians of unsaved people that come into the room, they see prophecy and they say, surely God is among them. Your Sunday service, I'm saying, is a tool 
And I'm not talking about, you know, the black wall and the media. I am talking about gathering together in the presence of God being there. In Corinthians, Paul talks about unbelievers coming into your meeting in the context of speaking in tongues and in prophecy. Both those instances, he references unbelievers coming in, visitors coming in. I believe that when you are faithful with those who God sends you, he gives you more. You've, You've got to think through. It's a tool in your toolbox. When visitors come through our door, what are we doing with them? It's a tool in a toolbox, and that changes as you go through your various phases of church, but you've got to think that thing through. Number five, the foolishness of preaching. I've heard guys play with church, trying to make it into a discussion, trying to sit around tables and drink cheese and wine. The foolishness of preaching. It's a tool God has given you, no matter you're playing basketball, gridiron, whatever, you preach, bro. Kids, if you welcome one of these, Jesus says, you welcome me. Some people think there's a real anointing in the worship. Some people think there's a real anointing when you can preach well. Jesus guarantees when you welcome a child, you're welcoming him. Now there's different methods, models, ways of doing children. That stuff changes all the time. But the tool in the toolbox is don't forget the children. Number eight, you say this is a value grant, yeah, but listen, relationship, relationship. And the bigger you grow, let me just say this, the bigger you grow, more important it is. When your church grows, if you can remember just one thing that I've said today, it's this. As your church grows, you tighten your relationships and you loosen your responsibilities, your functions. You bring the leader in close and you discharge responsibility to him. That might not mean much to some of you, but that is countercultural in a worldly context. If you're gonna multiply things in a business, you wanna tighten up your po- policies, you wanna tighten up your procedures and relationships get put on the back burner. In the kingdom, it's exact opposite. You tighten the relationships and you loosen the responsibilities. It's a tool. It's a principle. Your apostolic connections are a tool in your toolbox that you shouldn't leave out. I hope I've been a little all over the place. I hope that made sense. And uh, I suppose the big takeaway from this is God show me the type of church you wanted me to lead. Let me have a sober assessment of what I've got in front of me. And don't fall into the trap of thinking there's a little model, there's a little blue and red model that you can put together and God's gonna fill it with people in his Holy Spirit. He gives you human beings. You lead them to Jesus, you develop relationship with them, you breathe on them. And then it's masterful what Jesus creates. Every model is different. Why? Because he's magnificent and creative. Each church should look different from another, depending on who's God's put in there. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. Remember to go to ncmi.net for more resources.